The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. isn't just confined to acts of charity. There are so many ways of doing good through business, through social enterprise, impact investment, through community service and volunteering, and through activism and advocacy. As someone who has spent the last five years working heavily in the activism sector, specifically on orphanages, this form of doing good is one that is close to my heart. My guest today is Nick Hollis, and he's here to talk about his work as a queer activist, writer, and co-founder of the Institute of Many, an advocacy platform and grassroots movement for people living with HIV. As a queer woman myself, issues relating to the LGBTQI community, such as marriage equality, stigmatization, exclusion, transphobia, and HIV form a large part of my identity and my community. Of course, HIV is not limited to the LGBTQI IQ community, but the vast majority of HIV cases in Australia can be attributed to sexual contact between men. Intense stigma and fear form an integral part of the narrative around HIV, and Nick's work with the Institute of Many, or TIM as he calls it, aims to support people living with HIV and challenge that dominant narrative. TIM has the largest membership of any HIV organisation in Australia, and has been identified as a major player in the nation's modern-day HIV response, delivering grassroots activism, digital campaigns, resources, events, and digital community spaces since 2012. In addition to his work with the Institute of Many, Nick is the campaigns director at Change.org, and his writing on HIV-AIDS, LGBTIQ issues, law reform, and human rights has appeared in the ABC, Archer Magazine, The Guardian, The Sydney Morning Herald, SBS, The Lifted Brow, Junkie, as well as a load of other international and queer media. He's a frequent guest on current affairs TV and radio, including appearances on Australia's Q&A, Late Line, Radio National and Triple J. In addition to his activism, Nick has worked extensively in media and comms for non-profits and digital agencies, as a political policy writer and as an artist. I'm so pleased to have Nick with us today. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Nick. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for having me. Very pleased to have you here. First of all, Nick, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you on a personal level? The idea of doing good is a really beautiful, pure concept. And in its purity, it's almost a little basic, right? Like, because it's interpretable. Because good for me is about redressing power imbalances. It's about making the world a more equitable, just place. That's that's what I consider 
good to be. But my version of good is not someone else's version of good. And I, I love the idea because it actually allows for a bit of nuance and complexity and tension. There are people who, who consider it, you know, whose, whose idea of good would be closing borders off of a country or a region because for them good equals protecting in their mind borders. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point to make is that it's subjective, you know, and I think on this podcast, certainly it's probably biased by what I think is good as well. And I'm, I'm very aware of that. So that's, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. Would you say that for you doing good is something that you express in daily life or is it something that you would silo off to the side and say, here's how I live my life and then here's how I do good? Oh, I mean, in this context of me being a guest on your podcast and, and being given the privilege to kind of present the, the best version of myself forward through this profiling, uh, I would, of course, say that, you know, doing good is something I try to do, you know, in everything that I do. And that's the version of myself that I really want to put forward to you and your <laughs> listeners. Um, the reality is that, you know, I so often get tripped up in the pursuit of doing good, which is subjective. And, you know, over the years have tripped up so many times in going after the opponents of that goodness, uh, you know, however you want to call them, getting completely subsumed by that kind of, by the ego in that, by the territorial thinking in that, by just the, the frustration at injustice and that spilling out into, you know, not being a very good person online. And that extends to, to not being very kind or good to myself and not scaffolding the right amount of support around me uh, in the work that I do. Yeah, I can relate to that. I think, you know, it's as an activist, it's very easy to get consumed by what you're working on and it to overtake all the parts of your life and kind of seep into your self-identity somewhat. So, yeah, I think it's really important that scaffolding to kind of provide some separation and space from the issue so you don't end up in that in that state where you're feeling like you're fighting against the world you know and yeah like yes so have you always been an activist has this always been inside you no no i uh, started out my life as a um my professional life my adult life as a theater maker and an artist and i suppose a lot of artists like to see themselves as doing good in the world that, that that the work they're making is contributing somehow to 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 making the world a better place that their work is political but it wasn't until I was diagnosed HIV positive when I was 30 uh, about seven years ago eight years ago now almost that I transitioned away from a kind of political or not political always art making to a life of of, of activism and was transitioning to that life of activism specifically around HIV, was that part of your strategy for coping with that? Upon reflection, it really was. Uh, at the time, I, I think I was telling myself that I was really okay with that life change, with that piece of information. And the reality was that it's, it's kind of true, like the material situation around me as a newly diagnosed person with HIV in the middle of Sydney as a 30-year-old white gay man 
meant that I actually had the agency to have it pretty good. You know what I mean? Regardless, I was also raised under this cloud of HIV and AIDS growing up so that when that happened to me, when that news arrived, um, it was also a huge shock and trauma that I reacted to um, in a particular way. And part of that was kind of throwing myself into this new life of, of advocacy and activism, you know, and, and that, that was a good and bad thing. I had been like angry and passionately angry, not just kind of, not just impotently angry about some like queer politics stuff in the couple of years prior. Like I had kind of found my capital P pride and I had, uh, had been kind of, uh, I guess, crystallising my politics around my queerness in, that, in my kind of mid mid to late 20s but nothing was really sticking like this was the era of of like when Julia Gillard was prime minister and and that kind of um that's that first real big failure of marriage equality um through the parliament when she allowed the conscience vote and I remember being conscious of that and being disappointed in it but I also remember it not feeling like this was my thing even though of course we all when it came to the postal survey and the plebiscite and, and, and the kind of safe schools kind of testing the waters that, that the right did in the lead up to marriage equality. I was really active in and around that space, but just really felt like that for some reason, I didn't feel like the marriage equality fight in that kind of Gilad era was, was, was my thing. And maybe was you know, I was too young. Yeah. Like, you know, I was like, I'm never getting married. I, I can barely get a, keep a boyfriend. No, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it was that <laughs> selfish, but, um, and then HIV happened to me and I was like, this is it. Like, um, I, I remember eventually this didn't happen right away, but as my activism kind of stepped up and took over my life, I suddenly understood what it was when religious people get the call because I kind of had this kind of understanding of, of what it would have been like to dedicate your life to this, to this purpose. And so... You know, lots of activists will join existing platforms or organisations. Starting your own kind of peer-led organisation is is not something very many people do. Um, I can relate. I've, I've done the same thing. What led you down that path of, of saying, look, we need something that's not happening? When we founded Tim, uh, there were two of us. There was a, a, another gentleman by the name of Jeff Lang who now resides back in the US where he's from. When we started Tim, it really was in a bit of a vacuum. We, we came along at the right time to do something a little bit differently, to think about things in a different way. Um, the history of HIV activism in Australia is an amazing, extraordinary history that um, I, I, I hope all Australians should be very proud of and all queer people should feel incredibly proud of and have a sense of, of ownership over, I think. But when we kind of came on the scene in the kind of late 2012, it had been a bit of a period of, of, of a bit of a funk, really, I would say, it for, for HIV activism in Australia. The 80s and 90s era of, of AIDS activism had essentially come to a close because we had a radical shift in the kind of treatments available to us in 1996, 1997, 98 in Australia, which um, meant that uh, HIV became a manageable condition, not, a, you know, not the death sentence, that old adage. But from that time, 
till uh, 2008 or so, there wasn't really much new stuff. There weren't, there weren't new big events in Australia to hold on to. And that kind of created an era that I called the long silence, really. Like it was people trying to get on with their lives, get on with combating a lot of the stigma, but without a lot of the like good news stories. Was the infection rate consistent throughout the, the long silence? It would go up and down. But yeah, I mean, essentially when we came on, there was actually a little bit of a, an uptick starting in, in new infections because of new testing technologies. So that was a big part of it too. But broadly speaking, everything was pretty consistent. There were so few AIDS deaths in Australia every year, we'd stop recording it. So AIDS was not anything that was killing people anymore. And you're getting around about a thousand or so people a year contracting HIV. Uh, and that was fairly consistent, right? And then we came along as a kind of newish generation uh, of people. And I remember at a meeting we were at for newly diagnosed people, Jeff sort of said, great, what's next? We did this workshop for newly diagnosed guys. That's where we met. And that's where Tim was kind of born out of this peer support, like in-person meeting. And the answer literally to Jeff was, oh, this is kind of it. There are these old social events that happen every once in a while called Planet Positive. And we were literally said, but don't bother going to them because that's just where like a lot of old POS guys, a lot of, uh, you know, so when I say POS, people living with HIV, it's a shorthand will be there and it's all a bit sad and depressing and it's not really worth going. And Jeff was just like, oh, well, we should start something. We should, you know, fill that void. That came at just this like perfect time because, uh, you know, a couple of years beforehand, this, um, this thing called the Swiss Statement had been released, which put forward the idea that having an undetectable viral load, which is when we, you know, our HIV medications give us to keep us from progressing onto AIDS-defining illnesses, was also an effective barrier to prevent HIV transmission. So the, the pills that were keeping us alive would also stop us from passing on the virus, which now is routinely accepted, but back then was incredibly controversial. So we kind of came in at this uptick of, of, of controversy and new ways of thinking about things, just as PrEP, which is the preventative drug, was coming on the scene. So there's a whole bunch of new stuff, and we kind of came in at the right moment to exploit that moment from a campaign perspective yeah and obviously to exploit the demand for relevant information and you know peer-led communities particularly with a lot of younger people being diagnosed so you mentioned that you know that the legacy of the movement here in australia what legacy has that left for current activists and how do you think advocacy has changed over time I mean, we owe so much to those early generations of, of people with AIDS, uh, AIDS activists and, and PLHIV, people living with HIV activism. And it's also really important to acknowledge that those people, not all of them, but many of them are still with us. They are simultaneously our historic context and our current context. And this is where a bit of the tension, I think, in modern day HIV activism sits, is that, you know, we are made up of more newly diagnosed folks, people who've been, you know, in in the game, so to speak, for 10 years or so, as well as people who were there founding the gay men's health crisis responses and, and the AIDS councils and the Aboriginal-led conferences and, and community health responses. They're still with us. They're still here. And we, we have to 
constantly evolve our ways of talking to each other to incorporate that lived experience and wisdom and trauma too. We're talking about a, a, a community of people, not to speak on behalf of everyone, but who've went through a deeply traumatic period of time and not just a year. We're talking here more than a decade of loss, annual loss of, of life and societal rejection and criminalization and all that sort of stuff. That experience is still in their bodies and it's still in our community. So, so that's really important to honour that. And as anyone who's worked in multi-generational, intergenerational activism will know, you also have to find a way to respectfully challenge and bring in new ideas and not just sit there and be told that this is the way we do things because this was our experience. And Tim really just learnt from those old lessons and incorporated them into a more digital context, really. It's always been the case with HIV activism and health promotion to go where people are. So that's why back in the old days, activists would walk into sex on premises venues and nightclubs and dance parties with posters and condoms and lube and sexual health information and have those conversations there instead of just asking people to come to a community center or, or wherever or a town hall meeting. And we did the same thing in Tim. We, we looked around where people were congregating and it was online. It wasn't people weren't looking for in-person support as much anymore. Some people still were. So we, um, we just took that message there and it worked. So there's still a hell of a lot of stigma around HIV in Australia and in some of your writing, you've talked about stigma and divisiveness, not only coming from communities outside the LGBTQI space, but within. And part of what you wrote talked about shaming of those that don't conform to, you know, norms such as monogamy. How does that stigmatization challenge the work that you're doing with Tim? It's really hard. I want to firstly say that we're always progressing. It's always, it is always improving. And it's, I think it's our job as activists to celebrate the mini victories and to acknowledge the process and find that tension of saying, but it's not quite good enough yet without just focusing on, on the fact that where we're at isn't quite good enough yet. And I think that as progressive activists, we're very good at dismissing small shifts in aerial quality of life for, for our communities because we're not quite at the perfect, perfect space. And the reality is we're never going to get to the perfect environment. But at the same time, I think there has been a noticeable shift in the earliest days of the AIDS crisis. There was so much fear. And looking at the way that we are processing our fear around coronavirus reminds us of what that AIDS epidemic in Australia era was like so much fear from media, from decision makers in power, from general community members who were rightly scared that, that, that was, it was understandable where that fear was coming from, but how that fear then translated into a kind of broad societal rejection of people living with HIV and the communities most at risk of HIV, which in Australia were queer people, largely gay, bisexual men and uh, trans women and sex workers, people who inject drugs and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Now, over the course of several years, those communities, and I'll speak, I really can only speak of, uh, for the MSM, for the men who have sex with men or gay bisexual kind of communities, the majority of stigma and discrimination is keenly felt from within the community more so than from outside of it. There's still a lot of ignorance and a lot of a lack of information out there, but in my experience, 
when you illuminate a, a previously ignorant person from the broader heterosexual mainstream community about HIV and you give them information that, you know, a person with an undetectable viral load has zero risk of transmission, that that means you can have kids, that, that you're not going to die, their reaction is, oh, gosh, I, I hadn't heard of that. Why haven't I heard of that? That's great news. Whereas the affected communities who have been living under the cloud take so much longer to accept that scientific reality as truth and fold that truth into their lives and use it to let go of their fear, of their ignorance, which and sometimes is willful. You have these examples of lateral violence occurring from within the queer community of HIV negative gay men who are holding on to their HIV negativity and excluding people living with HIV from their lives and from their narrative and, and um, demanding that they do more to keep everyone safe, including being criminalised, than you have in the, the general community, which I think teaches us a lot about the way that fear can be exploited to turn communities against each other. Absolutely. And, you know, it makes you think about, as you said, the lessons that we can learn from this and how they're applicable to the current you know, coronavirus pandemic we're in. And I think, you know, you're starting to see some of the longer term results of the fear happening and, and that comes through out through policies, but also behaviors, you know, towards people that may or may not have the virus and, you know, the, the whole idea of quarantine. And yeah, it's really interesting. The state relies on this kind of crowdsourcing of, of policing that, individuals should be put under surveillance by their own communities to ensure that we're all quote-unquote doing the right thing and if you don't do the right thing you, you, there needs to be some sort of carceral response to that um, some sort of policing response to it which has been proven to be highly ineffective apart from making people feel more afraid and thus do more reporting. Do you think that for those people who lived through those times when, you know, it was a very scary issue. There was a lot of fear coming, as you say, from, from all places. Do you think for those people that are still with us and are living through coronavirus now that there's a, there's a kind of increased sense of or a triggering of the trauma that they experienced then? Yeah, it's been really interesting charting the community's response to coronavirus in, within the Tim community and kind of looking at, at the tone of conversations. And we saw this like uptick in anxiety in the group, uh, in the Tim community. There's not one universal experience on it. Some, some folks who were AIDS survivors, AIDS era survivors, uh, were saying that this was really triggering for them. It reminded them exactly like you said of, 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 of an era that was previous and, and that they were um, feeling all sorts of things. And then there were conversely people saying that, that coronavirus is nothing like the AIDS era in Australia, that the speed of the government response to take care of as many people as possible and not just silo minority communities into a lack of care or, or neglect um, is one thing. This was before the, the Melbourne Towers went into lockdown. So I think we've also seen some pretty clear examples of the state exceptionalising and othering um, uh, uh, minority communities with a lack of nuance that has done harm. Yeah, absolutely. 
So one issue that pops up in media quite regularly is uh, the issue of allowing gay or bisexual men to donate blood. You've written on this and something you, you wrote was was pretty confronting. I think for well, for a lot of people, it is confronting. You said the most inclusive ethical way to allow gay or bi men to donate blood is to end HIV. Anything else is a slap in the face for those of us living with the virus, an insult to the decades of activism and organizing and a forgetting of those lost to the AIDS crisis. This is something I do feel very passionately about and this is something that I I have skin in the game about. And I also want to say that I understand where the frustration and hurt from HIV-negative gay and bisexual men who want to donate blood and cannot, that those feelings are valid, that they're real. It it, It is discriminatory. It is unfair that they can't donate blood, that they want to contribute to society and that and by virtue only of their sexuality, it seems, they are unable to. To that, I always also say that the reason for that unfairness uh, is set against this backdrop of, of this great cosmic universal injustice and unfairness of HIV in general. Like the reason that is there is because through sheer bad luck, it feels in some ways the gay and bisexual community around the world has been disproportionately impacted by HIV and that we are still dealing with that, that even though we have these amazing new prevention technologies in the form of PrEP so that for the first time, finally, an HIV negative person can can take a pill that prevents them from getting HIV and they will be protected no matter what. And the fact that as a person living with HIV, I take one pill a day with no side effects and that means that I cannot transmit the virus to my sexual partners or to a child if I was to become a dad. So that I also understand and, and, and that's a hard thing, I think, for us to get our heads around when we're dealing with what looks like a ongoing discrimination uh, aimed at gay and bisexual men. It is frustrating, though, to, to see these kind of calls for changes for HIV-negative gay and bi men to donate blood before we've reached the end of the HIV crisis in Australia. Like, we have it within our power to end HIV. And when that happens, if we can virtually eliminate HIV transmissions in Australia, there is no longer an argument to be made for the uh, gay blood deferral to be in place. And what an extraordinary achievement that would be. It's sort of, it's putting the cart before the horse in some ways. And secondly, this is a hard thing for for people to understand and, and to say even, but the reason why gay and bi men are still excluded or have to stay celibate for three to six months, et cetera, is that statistically it is a smarter decision to exclude us from the blood donation pool then it is to shift that discrimination to account for risk instead of just excluding us because, because as a population, we are inherently riskier when it comes to HIV. That can be a really hard thing to get your head around, especially in this kind of you know, more modern world of identity politics where our personal identity is, is tied up to our sense of who we are. And when we are told that we can't do something because of our identity, like we've been trained to be angry about that and to demand change. That's what we do. That's what we do as queer people. You can't tell us that we can't fully participate in the world. But the alternative as it stands at the moment is to allow anyone 
to donate blood but to assess them for genuine risk. So it's not about whether you're gay or bisexual. It's about have you had unprotected sex with a partner or multiple partners in the last little while? And if so, you can't donate blood. The impact of that on our blood bank in Australia would be monumental. As unfair as it might be, if you were to say to heterosexual people of 18 to 50, 60, whatever, um, you can't donate blood if you have had condomless sex with a partner or partners in recent times, the negative impact of that on the blood bank would be far greater than the positive impact of allowing gay and bisexual men to donate. So it would be us forcing through a policy to make us feel better and feel less shitty and less discriminated against, and it would have a negative impact on our blood donation. And I I really can't see how we could ethically argue for that just to make ourselves feel better. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic example of good intentions causing bad outcomes for a larger group of people than will benefit from the good intent, you know, the, the good intention outcome. And yeah, there's certainly, you know, really big ethical considerations in pushing for a change like that, that has the capacity to mean life or death for people who are recipients of blood donations. So yeah, I think that that's something that we talk about a lot in this podcast is what what happens when somebody particularly, you know, this happens a lot in activism is somebody's pushing really, really hard for something and it's valid, you know, it's valid to want that thing and to want it with, you know, every part of you because often it affects you deeply sometimes that causes blinkers to be put on in terms of how that will impact other populations or, you know, individuals. And I think as activists, it's very easy to get caught up in what it is that we stand for. And you mentioned this earlier in the conversation, you know, those trip ups that we have when we, we enter into fights and arguments with people that don't share our cause or, or our perspective on on the cause. Oh, absolutely. And I've, you know, in, I've been critical of the blood equality movement for years now. I mean, I, I think that article you're quoting from was from 2014 or something like that. It's been a long time that I've been critical of this uh, movement. And initially, you know, in the early days, I was, it made me personally very angry and upset to see what I felt was, was an act of lateral violence from my gay and bisexual brothers, HIV negative ones, who couldn't see that the impact that this was having. Because also it, it, what it does is it creates this gulf, right? There's, if you follow this through to its natural conclusion, it means that there is this portion of the gay community that is monogamous or, you know, um, well-behaved in terms of sexual safety and that they are pursuing for their right not to be associated with these HIV positive or sexually promiscuous or irresponsible gays and that they would much rather align themselves with the morally upright blood donating heterosexual community um, versus us. And I have to admit, like that stung. I was like, why are you so ashamed of us that you don't want to sit with us, so to speak? I would get angry about it and I still do get a bit riled up about it. But I also over the years have really had to stop and think and, and examine where this desire comes from and to practice, try and practice a little bit more empathy with it all not to see an opposing view as a threat. You know, you've talked about ending HIV and obviously using, you know, the incredible medication and testing and prevention kind of approaches that we have these days. 
I want to talk about the U equals U campaign and how that kind of drive to end HIV or end the transmission of HIV is taken within the community itself. Because as you mentioned, you know, I, as a queer woman, did not know that undetectable equals untransmissible until I read your work. And I think, you know, that's that's a quite an amazing thing and something that, as you said, people in the wider community go, wow, isn't that really incredible? And others kind of go, uh, no, you know, it's another, it's another hurdle to get over, you know, a fear-based hurdle. How does that impact the campaign and the campaign materials around the U equals U that you try to put out there? It's a really massive challenge. It's like U equals U is such a good news story and its global implications are massive because it basically means if we can get around, and these are big barriers, right? If we can get around like a global supply chain issue that's linked to big pharma and states and, you know, global, you know, it's a a big global issue. But essentially, if you can get medication in the hands of every person with HIV around the world, we would end the pandemic. We would end the HIV crisis. We would still have people living with HIV and they would need to keep accessing their drugs to keep themselves alive and um, uninfectious. But you know, it's possible. And we're seeing that happen in more resourced, largely Western, but not always contexts, right? So that's super exciting. But U equals U is almost like a newspaper retraction that gets published after a damaging article comes out and the retraction sits on page two and it sits there and you've got to find it again, right? No one remembers the retraction. Everyone remembers the headlines, sorry, from the day prior. And that's really what we're dealing with when we talk about HIV AIDS, the impact of those five letters, AIDS, HIV, the impact of that globally on our consciousness, on our collective imagination, our collective memory is so great that everything that's come after that has felt like a newspaper attraction. And so you're constantly trying to, as activists, get this new, important, updated information out there. People just, you know, can't stop thinking about that big story. That narrative that that HIV is scary and something to be incredibly fearful of and protect yourself and everyone you love from. Yeah, and it's it's not just in our collective minds. It, it sits in our laws too. You know, we have our laws are still operating off this 80s and 90s concept of HIV and AIDS. And so we're still seeing people go to jail, people be uh, prosecuted or threatened with prosecution for not disclosing their HIV status in some places. It's only a couple of years ago that um, a trans woman sex worker was extradited from New South Wales to Perth and put in a men's prison for an HIV criminalisation case. You know, I was in the court when, when she was sentenced and it was one of the hardest, most heartbreaking days of my HIV activist life, seeing the impact that should never have happened on so many levels. Like that was a systemic failure from before diagnosis, before she contracted HIV, through to her diagnosis, through to the care that she was able to access or unable to access, you know, so many steps along the way. Um, with, with systemic failure and it's all tied up in, in people um, not embracing the, uh, the scientific developments and changes. And have our laws and policies caught up? No, if, if anything, we're kind of going backwards. Um, New South Wales is pursuing a change that would see people be forcibly tested 
for HIV if they spit on a police officer, which is a, a change that um, has been rolling out around the country over the last few years. That is in direct opposition to the science, that there is no, I mean, beyond civil liberties nightmare of forcibly detaining a, a person for a test for HIV and the implications of that, there is no way that you could transmit HIV through spitting. And yet police unions are just kind of aggressively pushing for these laws to become enacted. There's no benefit apart from giving them more power. If medication can prevent, you know, reduce the transmissible load to undetectable, why is the public health policy not to ensure that everybody has access to that medication easily accessed and the support systems that are required to be around that, would it not be, you know, in the long-term public health benefits from a preventative kind of perspective to invest in that rather than invest in, as you say, forcibly testing people for HIV? Well, I mean, firstly, and this comes back to what I was saying before about, you know, not letting good be the enemy of, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Wait, I'm sorry, I got that all around the wrong way. <laughs> I know what I'm trying to say. Sorry. <laughs> but you yeah. know what I mean? Um, and, and acknowledging that, you know, we, we are, whilst we are simultaneously seeing the police and others refusing to acknowledge science, we are also seeing health departments be, re- be really great and embracing the, the importance of these prevention technologies and making them accessible and affordable and free in many cases for people with HIV in Australia. So, you know, that work is being done. That good work is absolutely being done. What we are seeing now is we are revealing these communities and populations in Australia who have typically been ignored or excluded from the mainstream HIV health conversation because we've had we've had enough of a problem on our hands just dealing with the majority population, which in Australia is gay and bisexual men. So for years it's been like we don't have time to worry about trans sex workers or, or uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in rural and remote areas or even, you know, uh, women from sub-Saharan Africa migrating to Australia because we've got enough of a problem on our hands with, with the biggest cohort that we can reach, which is gay and bisexual men. That's now shifted. So now we're seeing dramatic declines in new HIV notifications from Australian-born gay and bi men, thanks to PrEP and U equals U, and it's forcing the Australian HIV response to take a long, hard look at itself and how it has uh, willfully ignored or, or paid lip service to these other communities who now desperately need our help, but we don't actually have the... Um, the way of the language of, uh, and, and, the, and the, the tools to reach these communities and, and let them lead their own health revolution. It's, it's revealing a lot. And so is that a particular challenge for you in Tim is how do you bring those voices to the front or, or allow space for them? Yeah, absolutely. Very much so. The majority of Tim membership remains Australian-born gay and bisexual men. It's, it's relatively representative of the community. And over the years, we've uh, looked for ways to do that. You know, we've supported uh, women living with HIV to create Tim Women, which is an um, adjunct um, digital space for women living with HIV to make sure they have their own 
space to um, support each other as well as be welcomed within the TIM community. We have very clear guidelines and policies around inclusivity. Uh, We've also just recently created TIM Families, which is a new environment um, for anyone, uh, any families affected by HIV. So that includes HIV negative and positive folks. And personally, as an activist, I've kind of, you know, I was so lucky. There was a few years there um, where I had a enviable platform with which I could talk about HIV and I went on every single TV show and I did all the radio stuff and I could write an article and get it published um, if I wanted to about HIV. And I went to all the international conferences and spoke at them and I, you know, uh, and then I reached this point where I was like, I don't need to keep being this platformed poster boy for this all the time. If this community is going to shift and move, it takes vacating spaces and 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 creating opportunities for other people and, and allowing those people to fill those spaces so started to pivot my activism towards creating sorts of opportunities so you know earlier this year abc did an episode of you can't ask that around hiv which we were instrumental in in getting off the ground and pitching and 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 casting and were really vocal about the broad range of voices that needed to be on that and this is going to sound super kind of egoey and arrogant but people were surprised that I wasn't on it given a couple of years ago I was kind of everywhere with HIV and it was very important for me to get out of the way but that's so hard for activists and for movement builders and for people who feel so invested in this work that you that it's your whole identity you know at the start of this podcast I talked about you know like my activism being akin to a religious calling like you know leaving the nunnery it's like maria and the sound of music you know it's really hard um (laughs) it's you're you're right and you know i have a lot of these conversations with activists um particularly you know more recently in the international development sector where you know, we have this culture in Australia and in other places, but of hero worshipping the founder or the activist um, who becomes the face or the voice of the other people. It's you become an interim way to interact with with others uh, in a more palatable way that kind of meets your expectations around communication and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot of conversation around how do you step away and and make room what's your responsibility to do that and also how can you challenge the way media and other organizations perpetuate that hero narrative and you know use use your position to push for media to make other voices prominent and I think kind of that's a natural evolution of the next step of, of being an activist and stepping away from that centralized platform and, and using it to, to push for change. I completely agree. And I think it's, you know, it's so dangerous that hero, that centering of the hero and like, you know, you've got to work really hard not to um, believe your own bullshit, right? Like it's really difficult it is it's that positive feedback loop that your community and media and your family and your peers are, are all, you know, constantly pushing back on you. And even if you may have some, you know, internal doubts about your role or the validity of it, it's very hard to, to kind of come out of that space and say, well, actually, no. I've been really lucky that I've kind of had to 
pay my rent and get jobs and I'm now uh, working um, at a kind of a multi-issue platform um, at the moment as campaigns director and it's 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 not single issue my own community sort of stuff it's not even aside from being HIV it's not even just LGBTIQ stuff like it is so many different issues started by you know quote-unquote everyday people not activists and things so it's really taught me a great deal about um, ego and letting go Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, that shift to a platform-based activism is a really interesting societal shift as well. Um, so what what has it been like for you to move from single-issue activism to multi-issue activism? It's been really illuminating and I've, I've retrospectively learnt a lot of lessons that I wish I, I had learnt in the moment uh, during my time in HIV activism. And I think that this is something I will never budge on. It's it's a fundamental aspect of, of ethical social change is in, in that people lived experience need a uh, meaningful role in decision making, and you know it, it can't be top top down. You know it needs to be um, inclusive and, and considered. And simultaneously, I've also seen from being the, that kind of adjunct campaigner activist who isn't of the affected community. I've also seen the way that our passion for our issues when we have so much skin in the game can actually blind us a little to, to the pathway out of where we are towards change um, and to some stuff around the, you know, the political reality of Canberra, which is, you know, fucked anyway, but it's, all, but it's also true. Like it, can, it is fucked and true simultaneously. I guess so. It's about finding that perfect balance of empowering people with lived experience in those moments to have agency to feel empowered to feel that they are in control and simultaneously to have a scaffolded support network around them to ensure that the really pragmatic practical stuff about political compromise can be brought into the mix which is not to say that like people are too passionate about something so they can't see it for what it is like you've got to get to the core of of what feels right for that community for that campaign for that moment and simultaneously, you you do need you do need that um, wise voice on the shoulder to help guide uh, communities in those moments. And it's a tension; it's a dance. So I want to bring the conversation back to you and your kind of personal experience and evolution of doing good. Who is or has been in the past your greatest influence in in the work that you do, and why? You know, it's, it's interesting talking about that kind of centering of the hero and platforming the hero and, and, and the history of AIDS activism is one that has so many of those individuals and people and, and they are flawed because they're human. I've been really fortunate too. Like I, I have not just had to read about them in books, even though there are many who are no longer with us that I have only been able to read about in books or see in documentaries but that their contemporaries and, and the people who did survive the era, the Western AIDS era, are still um, around. And I have, it's an incredibly privileged position, but I have um, spent time with them and they have taken me under their wing. So there, you know, there's um, Paul Kidd, who is an extraordinary Australian uh, HIV activist and specifically HIV criminalisation activist who has you know, played a huge part in repealing some of the HIV criminalisation laws um, in Australia. I value his experience um, and his mentorship incredibly. A gentleman by the name of Jeff Honor, who only recently passed away, taught me some extraordinary lessons of what to do and what not to do. Um, and I think that's a really 
great thing for us to look to our heroes, not just to give us this kind of, you know, the perfect path forward for, for what we do, but also to help us realise what we what we as a newer generation would never do um, and learn from them. And Jeff kind of taught me both. Jeff was uh, extraordinarily, fiercely passionate about our right to seek pleasure and for us not to feel coward by our HIV status or by the pressures from within our own community to behave, quote-unquote, better. And, um, and he was a fundamental part of, of, of when Tim was formed and, and kind of stuck around as, as, our, um, as our wise elder who gave us so much support over the years. So my next question is a philosophical question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And when I say that, I mean something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. I'm currently reading Sarah Shulman's Conflict is Not Abuse. It's phenomenal and, I, and it's, it's been on my reading list for quite a while. In fact, I've been, I've been saying Conflict is Not Abuse is a shorthand um, without having read the book for quite some time, which I, I think I should own up to here. I'm really struck at the moment by how we are, we are allowing ourselves and our, ourselves, I, I, I guess I'm talking broadly about progressives, about the left, about... Um, whatever you want to call us or however we want to um, group ourselves, we are playing into a really dangerous trap around online discourses and tones of debates and um, issues around polarisation. And I think that we are holding ourselves to an impossibly high standard at the moment that is impractical um, and that is allowing um, allowing our opponents to poison the well and the, that, that, that group of persuadables that we desperately need up before to get any issue over the line. Um, uh, they are being turned off, not by us, not by the way that we are behaving on the internet. That's not what this is about, but, but we are, I think that we are allowing ourselves to be played at the moment. And while, while that's happening, we have a very real threat to democracy, to fact-based policymaking, that this happening under our noses at the moment. And I, it gives me great pause. What's the solution? It's not to log off. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's for us to bend more to compromise and to not let perfect be the enemy of good. And, I, and I, I'm really conscious here when I say this, this isn't some smoke screen for, for like centrist sort of thinking. That's not what this is about at all. I think that like, like the sensible centre as it's currently being described is actually just the right. Um, and we've, we've, they have worked really hard to make that happen, um, which is not to say we have allowed that to happen, but while they have been doing that, we have done that thing that we do so well, which is turn on ourselves and each other instead of, instead of, um, instead of trying to bring as many of those persuadable people with us. And now it's gotten pretty ugly. Yeah. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, the impact of essentially global lockdowns and how that, how that impacts on how people engage with others and that polarization or that group think. Yeah. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, what would it be? 
I haven't had to say this for a while, but on the spirit of, of what we've been discussing at length, I would have to say is that there are some 37 million people living with HIV around the world and they are human beings um, and that they desperately need support, not just well wishes and empathy and love, they need social structures to improve so that they can survive and thrive and prosper. If you wanted to contribute to that, where would you go? I would, well, direct any po- people living with HIV, you know, to join Tim, which sounds self-promotion, but it's, it's, it's self-promoting, but it's really not. Um, I don't get anything out of it. I would encourage folks to, to read up on what it is to live with HIV in 2020. You can do that through Tim. You can do that through ACON. You can do that through so many of the other uh, HIV and AIDS organisations uh, in Australia and around the world. And then I would make sure you have those conversations and spread that good news. And if you wanted to donate uh, in Australia or at a global level, where's a good place to go? Um, we don't accept uh, donations at Tim, so don't give to us. Um, we don't need your money. <laughs> Largely, the global HIV response is relatively well-resourced and I would ask that people educate themselves and advocate with us and I would give my money in this country right now to um, uh, you know, the Aboriginal Legal Service and those organisations that are fighting uh, to deal with the ongoing horror show that is Indigenous incarceration in this country. Absolutely. Nick, where's your favourite place on earth? Northern New South Wales. Uh, Uh, up in the mountains beautiful what books are you reading i know you mentioned one before is that are you a single book at a time kind of guy no i'm not i've usually always got two to three on a go um uh, conflict is not abuse by sarah shulman is one of them that i'm reading also uh currently uh reading humankind by rook de brigman who is the person that wrote utopia for realists uh a few years ago and I'm just starting Jess Scully's Glimpses of Utopia. Lots of Utopia in there. Real Ideas for a Fair World, which has just been released. Wonderful. And do you listen to podcasts? I have to confess that my podcast listening has waned um, during lockdown. I, have, I, I used to have a habit of, of listening to um, uh, some like, like, uh, like weekly news, current affairs, political podcasts, but that's kind of dropped away. Um, recently, I had been listening to Rabbit Hole, the New York Times podcast about um, uh, internet radicalization and polarization. And that was terrifying. As someone who works for a tech platform and cares about polarization and social good, uh, it's a scary but important thing to listen to. Yeah, wow. I might take a listen. If people want to find out more about Tim, what, where should they go? What's the website? Um, it's just www.theinstituteofmany.org. You can also find us on Facebook at uh, Facebook slash The Institute of Many or um, Facebook slash groups slash The Institute of Many. And our de facto Twitter is my Twitter, which is Nish Hollis, N-I-C-H-E-H-O-L-A-S. Excellent. Nick, it's been such a wonderful conversation to have with you today and I'm very grateful for you sharing your time. Goodness, thank you so much. It's, it's a pleasure to deep dive into these notions of good and goodness. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a real privilege and a pleasure. So thank you so much. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. 
Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.